You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. According to a recent joint report by Bain and Tmall, the luxury goods market in mainland China likely achieved 48% growth in 2020, doubling China's overall share of the global luxury market, with further growth expected in 2025. Much of that growth fueled largely by China's affluent middle class, millennials and Gen Z, and female consumers. The modern Chinese woman is an economic powerhouse who stands at the forefront of global luxury spending. With more financial and social independence, social stability, and higher disposable incomes, women in China are spending more on themselves, and luxury brands are raising the bar to satisfy their demands. For luxury Western brands looking to flourish in China, it is essential for them to speak to Chinese women in a way that resonates. That means embodying contemporary femininity and various gender expressions and responding to their values and aspirations. Here to help us better understand who the new generation of Chinese women are and how brands should think about representations of femininity and beauty in their marketing in China is my guest today on the luxury item, Laurence Lim Daly. Laurence is the founder and managing director of Cherry Blossoms Intercultural Branding, a boutique marketing agency based in Hong Kong and New York City. She is an expert on diversity and decoding of cultural differences. With her Cherry Blossoms team, she helps Western brands in the beauty, hospitality, jewelry, fashion, and wine and spirit sectors to better resonate with Asian consumers. Originally from France, Laurence started her career working for the French government on diversity and equal opportunity issues before moving to Hong Kong in 2008. There she found her marketing agency, Cherry Blossoms, with the goal of bridging the gap between East and West. Since 2018, Laurence has been based in New York City and is now a frequent keynote speaker on China and marketing for organizations such as China Connect, the Women in Innovation Forum, the French Chamber of Commerce, Sotheby's, Jing Daily, and major international business schools. Welcome to the luxury item, Laurence. Thank you for your invitation, Scott. I'm so excited to have you on. Me too. It's been a, it's been a long time coming. I think we've been talking about it for a while, but uh, I'm so glad um, you're able to join me today. So am I. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Cherry Blossoms Agency and how you work with brands? Sure. So Cherry Blossoms is an agency that I created back in 2009 in Hong Kong. And the idea was to uh, help um, luxury brands and luxury groups um, decode cultural differences between the West uh, and China uh, in terms of mindset, in terms of imagination, aesthetics, language, values, uh, to help them localize their branding. So basically, it's about uh, helping uh, brands improve their cultural intelligence to avoid um, to avoid cultural bias and to better resonate with Chinese consumers. So when you when you launched it, did you see a gap in the market? Like, what motivated you to focus specifically on that? I think uh, at the time, so yeah, more than ten years ago, uh, there was a clear. Uh, China was already um, a very a major uh, market for the luxury industry, uh, but there was a gap because the, there was a, a vast ignorance of uh, Chinese consumers and of these cultural differences. So uh, uh, there was, a, well, I wouldn't say a blue ocean, but there was definitely a, a gap to fill in. Yeah, because I had learned before uh, from my background, I was working for uh, for five years on uh, on diversity issue, uh, cultural diversity, and I also studied semiotics. So I thought it was a good way to combine um, 
the cultural decoding to uh, this um, this uh, key market that was uh, that was China, and to go beyond market research because there has always been a lot of uh, market research institute in China and analyzing uh, the consumer behaviors, etc. But it was I wanted to go deeper than this and really deconstruct um, deconstruct these these cultural differences at a more uh, with more granularity. Uh, I think that was um, that was something that was uh, missing at the time. You know, it seems the biggest challenge for Western brands is that they're still struggling to master the basics of being successful in China. Why can't Western luxury brands connect with Chinese consumers? Cannot connect? I would say they connect. I think they connect more and more. Uh, yeah, precisely. I think that 10 years ago, they they didn't connect because luxury brands, especially uh, European luxury brands, were um, were perceived positively and were erratic and aspirational because they were Western brands. So I have the feeling that luxury brands didn't really make the effort to engage with Chinese consumers uh, and they remained a little bit distant uh, and very Western-centric in their approach. And I think that now they do connect. I think now all eyes are in China because as you said, uh, uh, the, the, the China is, um, contributes to 90% of the growth of the luxury industry today. So for most, uh, for, for many luxury brands, China is a major, is their number one market. So they do connect, uh, they localize a lot their communication, they, they, they use more and more local Chinese ambassadors, influencers, they design uh, localized content on WeChat, they, they, they enter uh, Chinese e-commerce platforms, which was uh, just a few years ago, uh, uh, something uh, not, uh, not likely to happen. Yeah, so yeah, I they mean, connect, they connect but, but sorry, they, they connect more, but it doesn't mean they resonate more with Chinese consumers and that's the challenge. Right. And maybe that's what I maybe that's what I was trying to say because you know brands like Gucci and Louis Vuitton have been actually doing well there and and get it if you will, but you're still seeing in the last few years, even as recently the last few months, where you have luxury brands still making mistakes in their marketing efforts. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, um, yeah. We see we observe more and more a growing number of backlashes and social media in China. Um, because precisely because brands <laughs> localize more and more their marketing and they make mistakes. And in a context of uh, rising national pride, uh, there's a hypersensitivity of the Chinese audience um, towards any form of uh, ignorance or condescendence towards Chinese. So they, they, yeah, we see more and more mistakes um, from, uh, from luxury brands, not only luxury brands, but uh, in, in particular, yeah. I'm wondering if they don't, are they not vetting it the right way before they launch the campaigns? Do they not have the right people on staff to look at these things before it hits, hits the think, marketplace? I uh, think the luxury industry is, a, is an industry that remains very centralized. Uh, and sometimes the, there's not the right bridge between the, the local teams, the local agencies and the headquarters. So they talk about disconnect here. Um, but I would say uh, in terms of, we, we all talk about the very caricatural mistakes uh, of, of luxury brands like uh, the Dolce & Gabbana, Shopsticks, etc. But I think it's more uh, the mistakes they make are more, um, more insidious. It's more, and, and it's more about, um, it's more about in general, I think the lack, uh, the lack of representation of, uh, of Asian people. I think this, is a, this remains a major issue for luxury brands to have a more, um, more representative and more balanced uh, representation of um, Asians and Caucasians when they communicate, uh, when they address the China market.
You know, you recently did a webinar for French founders about the new conceptions and representations of femininities and feminism in China and how Western brands can best engage with Chinese women. Is there a fundamental disconnect that you're seeing between the notions and standards of femininity and actual aspirations and values of younger China, younger women in China? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there's a there's a def there's definitely a disconnect. Uh, because uh, the specificity of Chinese femininity is that it has been encoded very early uh, in Chinese history by Chinese tradition. So at two levels, first at a physical level, uh, you have uh, since uh, the Han Dynasty, so two centuries before Christ, you have very specific and detailed beauty criteria, extremely centralized, ideals of beauty which were defined in, uh, in poems, in literature, so very specific metaphors. And, uh, and at psychological level, you have the, the heavy <laughs> Confucian heritage about the inferiority of women who's supposed to be soft, submissive, mm -hmm. reserved, etc. And this has formatted femininities in China for centuries. So something very rigid about even today, uh, about the conceptions and representations of femininity. So of course, there are today screaming aspirations of the of the younger women to shake, I don't say to break, but to shake these uh, uh, these norms, these uh, beauty standards, these uh, uh, social roles of the family, the social pressure, notably on, on marriage. Uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a huge disconnect. And we see um, it's very interesting to, to have a closer look to, to women's representations in uh, Chinese fiction, TV series and movies, because we see uh, very rapidly uh, that representations and aspirations are changing. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the whole Western model of feminism is so new to China. You know, how have the expectations of Chinese women and the dialogue around feminism, how has that changed over the years? Well, I will say there is no, there is no real dialogue on feminism in China because it's, uh, it's censored uh, by the Chinese government. Right. Uh, so you don't have uh, any more uh, feminist movements. You don't have, you have feminist activists in prison. Uh, think of Me Too. The, the hashtag Me Too is censored in China. Uh, and there are topics, so important topics in China, like, uh, for instance, domestic violence, which uh, no one can talk about. So, uh, no, there's no dialogue around feminism. Um, but well, what does that, well, does that, yeah. that must, that must restrict marketers who want to come into the market, they have to be very careful about the message that they put in their advertising so it doesn't cross that boundary of appearing to be feminist. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. which is why it's a, it's a very subtle game because, and I feel like um, uh, brands get a little bit imprisoned in very cheesy, uh, empowering messages to, you know, uh, uh, invite women to be more independent and strong and uh, determined, but uh, we're going in a circle and I think it's very difficult to go further um, these messages, but at the same time, uh, we need to realize the gap between uh, uh, the feminist fights in the West, in the US in particular, and in China. Uh, China is definitely lagging behind, whereas you see in Europe or in the US, uh, feminism is about uh, equal pay, toxic masculinity, the representation of women in politics. In China, it's <laughs> much more basic than this. Uh, the feminist fight, uh, 
uh, in China is about uh, fighting for women's independence. So it's a core topic. It's still a core topic. It's about uh, concretely the freedom to study, the freedom not to get married uh, at 25 uh, to focus on your career. So it's about that. So uh, maybe I'm a little bit harsh when I say uh, uh, bronze should communicate beyond these topics, but actually this, this topic of women independence in China is still very emotional and very, uh, very much resonating. Yeah. So you talk about in, uh, might, might have been a recent blog post recently that um, the latest economic niche opening in China is the boom of the lonely economy and young people in big cities, you know, seeking emotional outlets by embracing loneliness and consuming loneliness and brands are starting to cater to these consumers. Can you talk about this modern phenomenon and how brands are targeting single women in China? Yeah, sure. I think it's a very interesting phenomenon because it's the, I would say it's the the ending, the achievement of the evolution towards women emancipation. If you think about what marriage represents in uh, in Chinese culture, it's at the you know it's the core, the cardinal. Uh, a Confucian value. It's the basis of a society of harmony. It's a, the basis of virtue. So, so breaking that holy ancestral institution of marriage, because now in China you have an explosion of divorces, uh, which is very, uh, which is very new. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's been going on for ten years, and uh, until very recently, uh, being single was extremely stigmatized. And we talked a lot about, uh, I guess you remember, the, the leftover women, you know, these women who are over 30 uh, remaining single because they are too smart and too, uh, too wealthy and they cannot find a matching husband. So they, it was very negative. And now the new trend is a sort of um, positivization of singlehood, a celebration of a solo culture, solo lifestyle for women. Because for men, I have to say, uh, if you're men and single, you're still uh, uh, associated to uh, the nerd or the, the loser. Uh, and so, so we have this celebration of feminine singlehood because it embodies, uh, it's about it's a form of expression of individual freedom, which is the core topic in China. So, uh, so you see that the consequence of that is uh, econ at economic level, you see a boom of uh, all individual services, equipments, like uh, know, a mini fridge, a mini karaoke booth, things like that, boom of pet culture as well. Um, and in advertisements, uh, you see a lot of Chinese brands uh, staging this hedonist um, singlehood, the pleasure, uh, the solipsist pleasure to enjoy a drink by yourself, to choose what you're going to eat for dinner, etc. So it's, it's very interesting. And I think that um, luxury brands don't really, uh, don't really capitalize on that, um, on that trend. What do you think? I think they should. <laughs> but I think in general, they should be more observant of, uh, you know, micro, uh, micro trends like this in China. Uh, and uh, and reason to resonate at a more um, at a more uh, emotional level. Hmm. So let's talk about the new types of Chinese femininities that you're seeing. Um, could you describe each type and provide examples of where you're seeing it in the culture and in marketing campaigns? Sure. So so we need to to you have a lot of representations of femininity. Uh, I think uh, what's interesting is to look at first. Um, a very interesting trend is the um, over-representation of female success in the media. And, uh, and there I would identify three uh, types of, um, three concepts of success for women, uh, which are rising. One is the talented woman, 
uh, so generally an actress, but uh, an actress that uh, has really good uh, act, uh, talent, uh, acting talents. Now it's more and more difficult. And when you're a luxury brand, it's very important when you select your brand ambassador, not only to choose a famous uh, actress, but also to make sure that her rep in terms of reputation, she has talent because this uh, determines her aura. Mm -hmm. So the talented woman, who also she can also be an intellectual. The second type is um, the top manager. So this is also a rising representation. So the, the woman uh, climbing up the social ladder, the woman in control, and um, also the figure of the entrepreneur is rising in the media. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third category uh, are athletes, female athletes. It's a rising trend, notably because of the rise of, um, the rise of uh, national pride in China. So this has become a super, uh, they have become super aspirational and they become role models. Uh, in China, if and I, then I, if I, I'm sorry, if I'm if I'm not correct, I think the most female billionaires are in China. Oh yeah, I know this is a this is a specificity of China where you have a half of the um, self-made uh, women billionaires are in China. You also have in China a specificity is that uh, you have uh, 15 percent of female CEOs. Uh, compared with the U.S., it's only five percent. Yeah, wow. So, but this is the heritage of the of the Maoist of the Cultural Revolution. The fact that Mao uh, uh, installed installed very early uh, equality between men and women, and uh, the vast educational movement uh, uh, following, and also I think it's a it's a, um, a heritage of the single child policy because girls were invested as much as uh, boys. So this is, this is a specificity of China if you compare to other Asian countries like uh, Japan or Korea, for instance. Uh, so it's a paradox. But China is always full of paradoxes. <laughs> right. So you had this one type of femininity that you were describing. Yeah. And if you look at more interesting, so this is in the media, but if you look more, uh, more carefully at um, representations of women in fiction, uh, you have also interesting, uh, interesting persona. So you find again uh, this, this alpha uh, career woman, uh, super independent, ambitious, a bit cold, uh, giving priority to her career, workaholic, workaholic, and it's funny because if you look at uh, uh, US TV series or or. Um, uh, French TV series. It's more mm -hmm. the modern woman is more about, okay, I want a work-life balance. I'm going to work, quit my job in, a, in the corporate world and then and build my startup and it's going to be eco-friendly. And in China, it's not at all. It's, it's really about, uh, um, yeah, career women who want to get in the system, to want to succeed in the system. So it's interesting. And uh, other micro trends that I find funny um, is the, the, what we call the big sister. Uh, mm -hmm. trend. Big sister. Yeah, so it's, a, but it's the equivalent of the cougar actually in China. So you have these <laughs> couples uh, on, on TV series, couples, it's a leitmotiv, and it's really um, very frequent, a total reversal of gender roles. So you have the woman who's older, but of course, always beautiful, mm -hmm. super successful. And she's in a couple with a younger, prepubescent uh, young man. And it's the woman who dominates the relationship. And it's the man who's totally emotional and admires the woman and is so sensitive and can be, for instance, a, a manager and uh, her intern. So it's really, uh, it's, it's really interesting to, uh, to observe this kind of... Um, now, of these are the, these, this is a TV show. Yeah, it's not one. It's, it's a whole trend. Uh, that, so I couldn't, I couldn't mention the, so, <laughs> so has that, of them. So has that, has that, that trend 
moved over to marketing campaigns yet? No, no, uh, absolutely not. So I don't know, uh, there's there are probably some, um, uh, some potential for, for certain brands uh, to, uh, to resonate somehow with this kind of uh, new modern, uh, <laughs> modern couples. But uh, I think it's quite, I think to my knowledge, it's rather untapped at this stage. And you talked about in the different types of Chinese femininities, you talk about uh, empowered femininity and gender neutral femininity and unconventional femininities. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the 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 idea of gender is definitely uh, is definitely the core uh, the core topic right now in China because it crystallizes um, it crystallizes the idea of uh, as I said before breaking the norm uh, and accessing uh, individual freedom. So in a country where you have so much censorship, I mean, everything, you have zero liberty in China, you cannot talk about anything. So when you want to talk about freedom and express freedom, what is left? Gender. Right. So, uh, so it's a huge topic. It's been, it's been years already then that uh, uh, the gender neutral trend is, uh, is on in China, but now it's skyrocketing. Um, and a lot of luxury brands are embracing that trend as well because they know what it represents. It's not about uh, just I'm trendy because I represent a tomboy, a, a celebrity. No, it's much deeper than that because these women uh, embody uh, the audacity to be yourself. They embody uh, uh, also they embody these independent women and uh, who don't care about uh, other people's look. In a country where you know beauty, when when you're a woman in China, you need to stay young forever. You need to be beautiful right. in a certain way. I mean, there are so many constraints to women's femininity that these uh, gender-neutral, so they are usually uh, K-pop singers or or hip-hop singers, embody something really, really aspirational uh, in China. And what about the unconventional femininities? I would say unconventional femininities, you mean uh, the, the representation you know, more, of more inclusive more, Yeah, body inclusive and body positivity. Yeah. About Are we that, starting to see that? Mm, it's the beginning of it. So uh, definitely China is lagging behind in terms of uh, representation of inclusivity because for the reasons I just mentioned before, because such a long heritage of, uh, right. like for instance, being fat in China, it's not that it's ugly. It's just anti-moral it's not moral because it's about self-neglect and if, according to confucian values you need to self-improve you need to you know uh, so it's 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 at the core of uh, of chinese values something it's not superficial so it's very difficult to go against that and um, i would say some chinese brands are more advanced so we saw i have in mind um, an ad campaign from an underwear uh, um, Chinese brand called uh, Neiwei, and for the first time they represented a palette of women, and they all had a flaw. Uh, so usually in China, when you represent flaws, it's like, oh, she has a mole. Oh wow! Mm. <laughs> no, yeah. no. This time it was like a, a, an overweight woman, a woman with scars, a woman, an older woman, which is also mm. an age, <laughs> age in China. It's something that is, uh, yeah, absolutely not uh, represented. When we, when, when. Um, when uh, you see women over 40 uh, in China, uh, they always look like they are 25. So there's something that you, you don't uh, totally invisible. What was the response to the campaign? Very good. Very good. And, uh, and they keep going. Now they uh, recently they also showed a same-sex uh, couple. So I feel like uh, Chinese brands, for some of them, are, gonna, are, are more progressive. 
it's like when we think of um, uh, Alibaba uh, gay uh, ad campaign for Chinese New Year last year. It's it's crazy to think that was possible. Uh, but the, the problem is that Western brands, when Western brands try to um, try, try, try to do the same and to represent non-standard beauty, they get backlashed. Like, like what we saw with Zara, the, the woman with freckles. Yeah. So, it's, it's, uh... so in your opinion, do you think brands should be more courageous in embracing female empowerment in their campaigns? Because I know these brands are very, and we talked about this before, the brands are very sensitive about having anything to do with social movements in China. So do you think that they should be more courageous? It depends on what you mean by courageous, because I think, as I said before, there's a, such a strong censorship on on uh, on feminism that, uh, and in China, there's always a, a the problem is the gray zone. You never know because, for instance, you cannot uh, represent um, men with earrings in China in uh, movies. It's forbidden. You cannot represent or suggest uh, homosexuality. But then you had this. <laughs> more uh, this Alibaba campaign right. so you never know what will be censored or what will not but um, uh, but it's a it's a dangerous game I would say and it's funny if you look at for instance um, uh, bronze communication during women's day uh, and you have the e-commerce festival which is Queen's Day on that same day right. uh, you see that western bronze are not very vocal during that day because they're scared because they know that it's uh, that it's taboo so it's always about uh, uh, very um, superficial messages, uh, treat yourself, uh, uh, take care of yourself, you deserve it. And then it's, <laughs> these are right. indirect messages to buy uh, beauty products and stuff. And, and I think, was it a year or two ago? Um, I think Chanel had a, uh, a controversial slogan was that they, you know, for International Women's Day, which essentially translated into, quote, you know, a woman who does not wear perfume has no future. Yeah. Um, I think that was, I don't know how long ago that was, but that, I know that caused that a lot of controversy year. in China. That was last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And they received a big, uh, a big backlash, of course. So you see, it's a tricky game, but brands are working on eggs. So they prefer to stick to, in general, mainstream, uh, mainstream messages. Uh, but I think at some point they will need to, uh, we need the <laughs> V2.0.2 version of these yeah. empowering messages because, uh, it has become a bit overused. They have become overused. So how do you speak to clients about that who are nervous about saying the wrong thing? What, what do you tell them? Oh, it's, a, well, it's, it's a very individual cases because we need to take it into account, uh, first of all, the identity and the values of the brand. What does this particular brand stand for? What kind of femininity this brand embodies? Because it's about legitimacy. To what extent is your brand legitimate to carry a message of uh, that or that message of empowerment for Chinese women? You see, yeah. so you need to uh, you need to do kind of exegesis or psychoanalysis of your own of who you are, who am I, what do I embody, and how to translate uh, these values in China. And you need to translate them. I give you an example: uh, Fenty. If you take the Rihanna's brand Fenty. Uh, so she um, she created that brand. So her core value is to say, okay, I address uh, women of all colors, all cultures, all personalities, and, and indirectly, it's about uh, it's to fight against racial discriminations. But in China, that message was inaudible. Why? Because uh, China is is a monoracial country. You have a 92% of Han people, which means they are, you know, they are not confronted to racial diversity in China. Mm -hmm. So it makes no sense. So they, what, what Fenty did is to choose 
um, an a Chinese ambassador called uh, Wang Ju. And this person is very interesting because this person, uh, she's what we call the, the un unconventional beauty. She has tan skin. She, I think she's the only celebrity in China with tan skin. And, and that symbolizes, so she symbolizes inclusivity. She symbolizes breaking beauty standards uh, because this is what she stands for in China. Uh, I'm like, I'm who I am. I'm like, I am, I have my imperfections. I'm, this is also a little bit uh, athletics, which is not uh, in China, in China, you need to be skinny. So she embodies all that. And this is how uh, Fenty translated it, the core value in, um, uh, in China. I thought that that was interesting. Yeah. So overall, do you think most luxury brands are doing a good job of challenging the ingrained stereotypes and expectations of Chinese women? I think, uh, and who's getting it right? Who do you think is, is doing it right? Yeah, I think it depends. Uh, it depends on the industry. And I think that the beauty industry is by far uh, the more advanced in um, deconstructing stereotypes and, uh, uh, and um, talking about female empowerment. I think the best, so you, you're asking me for uh, best examples. I think the best example remains SK2. Uh, so you remember they had this iconic campaign by, back in uh, 2017 about the leftover women mm -hmm. uh, with this iconic campaign on, on the marriage market. And I think they, they set the trend. Uh, they set a trend after that. You know, uh, many brands followed, but they were really uh, were pioneer about that. And it's the first brand uh, which carried a societal message instead of just focusing on beauty. And with a very realistic approach, like some of their ad campaigns are look more like documentaries mm -hmm. than than movies, and which is why they really managed to uh, uh, to raise emotion and to address uh, real topics. So they really, uh, yeah, uh, disrupted the the uh, advertisement in that regard. Let's talk about the KOLs. KOLs have a big influence in China. How vocal are they when it comes to you know body positivity and women's empowerment? Like well, I think are not super vocal on this topic because uh, because again it's a subtle game and because of the censorship. But what I observe is that um, you have a lot of celebrity influencers, so singers, actresses, which which do carry these uh, and, and represent. It's not that they talk much about it, but they represent by who they are, uh, empowering messages towards women. So if you take Wang Ju, the, the, the standard celebrity uh, singer I, I was mentioning, this is what she stands for. Her message is uh, be authentic, uh, embrace your imperfections. Or you have another one, but you know Liu Wen, Liu Wen who's the most uh, famous, most prestigious uh, uh, supermodel in China. And at the time, so it was, uh, I don't know, almost 10 years ago, but she had, um, she didn't conform to beauty standard because she didn't have the double eyelid, which was what was the you know, ultimate mm -hmm. beauty criteria at the time. And this is what she stands for still today. So it's about, okay, my differences makes me unique, makes me strong, makes me powerful. And the, these women are role model and uh, we invite uh, women to be, uh, to be themselves. So you can, you can think, you can think that uh, it's cheesy, these messages are, are cheesy, but I, I can assure you that it's very emotional and very aspirational for a, uh, for the young generation. Yeah. So what do you think marketers can do to resonate with this new generation of Chinese women? Well, as I said, I think they need to pay more attention to, uh, to, to micro, micro trends and, and to maybe watch more, uh, watch more TV series and uh, um, be more attentive to, 
um, yeah, to what raises emotion uh, among, uh, among the young generation. And also have a look at uh, Chinese bronze communication because they, they can be more uh, daring in their approach. Yeah. You know, following a wave of U.S. companies like uh, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's and Mrs. Butterworth's being criticized for racist imagery and branding, many companies started removing words like fair and fairness and white and whitening and light and lightning from all of its brands and products. Um, you know, L'Oreal said it would remove words like whitening from its skincare products and the decision created widespread negative sentiment across China. I know you were kind of critical of that move too. Yeah, again, because the, the, the topic of racism or diversity cannot be addressed the same way uh, in the US and in China, for the reason I mentioned before, which is that the US are a multiracial country with a history of slavery, a lot of black people in China, you don't have black people, the only black people in China are, are you know, expats, people doing business, uh, and it's a monoracial country. And um, if, we, if you look at how the, the, the campaigns you mentioned were, were perceived in China, the, the suppression of the fair and the lovely skin in, by L'Oreal, etc., it was not that well perceived in China because they felt that they were um, considered as racist. And they said, but we, for us, whiteness, it has been a beauty criteria since the Han Dynasty. It's an ancestral Chinese beauty standard. Aren't we allowed to find it beautiful? You, West, when Western women are allowed to, uh, to find tan skin beautiful. So you see, you need to, <laughs> you need to change perspective here. Um, Chinese New Year holiday starting this week, it seems, you know, many luxury brands are using this opportunity to try and offset the revenue losses here in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, you know, China has been largely successful in containing the virus, which helped the economy bounce back and luxury consumption started gaining steam again. But recently, we're starting to see the country experience some small coronavirus flare ups here and there and new lockdown measures in place. So I don't know if you've been following any of the marketing or advertising around this holiday, how have the luxury brands approach their campaign messages? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we, we started Year. observing because the, the brands start to communicate very early on Chinese New Year because as you know, it's the most, uh, it's the number one, uh, most important, most emotional uh, celebration in China. And it's very, it's a very interesting time for us uh, because it's a, uh, to observe uh, it, Every brand for Chinese New Year localizes, has no choice but to localize their communication because it's a Chinese holiday, it's not like Christmas or Valentine's Day. So it's an excellent barometer to measure uh, brands' level of understanding of China. It's the trial by fire. So every year you have uh, backlashes. It's, uh, you know, it's mm -hmm. not always, sometimes it can be the, a brand can do great one year, the next year uh, do terrible mistakes. So it's, it's very funny to observe all that. And this year, um, what I've observed since now, uh, it's the year of the ox. So a lot of, um, a lot of very literal, uh, a lot of capsule collections with very literal uh, uh, use representations of the ox that you can find on uh, luxury watches, handbags, you have mm -hmm. handbags with the horns and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and this, this is a major issue during Chinese New Year because I feel like you have a lot of gimmicks um, so we really encourage brands to use more, uh, more humor, more creativity, and to remember that 
uh, it's a to get back to the root of uh, Chinese New Year, which is very emotional. So I don't know, but originally, I don't know if you know, it's um, it's an agricultural uh, holiday mm -hmm. festival, and it's about spring. It's about the renewal of seasons. So by extension, it's about uh, it's about the generation. So it's all about family, family reconnection, and this topic is hyper emotional in China in a context when you have a generational gap, you have the, the growing distance between, uh, you know, rural, urban China, parents, children, modernity, tradition, uh, etc. And uh, not enough brands uh, really um, resonate with that, uh, with that topic, whereas we see a lot of mass market or Chinese brands really uh, embracing that topic and making people cry, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a, I think it's a shame. So my final question, which I ask all my guests, is the luxury item question. And if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could have only one luxury item with you and that luxury item can't be any form of air transportation or anything that requires mobile service, what would that one luxury item be that you would have with you on that deserted island? And uh, without hesitation, I would say a bottle of champagne. Well, you're going to have to keep it cold. And, yeah, and, that's uh, the challenge. You're going to have to <laughs> sip it for a very, very long time. Just little drops to last you yeah. um, the long it takes. But I like that answer. Uh, Laurence Limdelli, founder and managing director at Cherry Blossoms Intercultural Branding. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.